Psalm 53 contains one of the most well-known verses. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. A denial of God is based upon a willful refusal to see the design and order of the created universe. And so it is the goal of David here in Psalm 53 to not only lament the foolishness of denying God, but to demonstrate how unbelief leads to depravity. As well, David outlines the consequences of unbelief and depravity before crying out for deliverance from fools. And so Psalms 53, Psalm 53 is a song of deliverance from fools. A song of deliverance from fools. Now Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. According to the superscription, it's a mascal of David indicating that he wrote this as a moral instruction. And while we do not know the specific occasion for David rewriting Psalm 14, there was likely a special circumstance in which David once again contemplated the issue of the fool as he did in Psalm 14. As well, the superscription tells us that it is to be played according to the Mahalath, or literally to be played as a sad tune. We're going to begin in verses 1 through 4 with the character of the unbeliever i.e. the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heavens upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? Now, verse 1 identifies the fool and the consequences of his foolishness. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, the fool is a man who has no perception of ethics, morality, or spirituality. In Psalm 74, 22, the foolish man is one who reproaches God daily. And since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs 9, 10, the fool in denying God denies himself wisdom. So he really is a fool. He has no wisdom. You see, to deny God ultimately means to deny a transcendent, a divine basis for morality. See, the fool, the unbeliever, is comfortable with morality being something that is an absolute. He likes morality to be determined by his wants, his needs. He wants a morality that has no absolute standard or truth behind it. You know, the, that's what this modern era is all about. You know, this... A self-adjusting morality. And I think that it's interesting that in this modern era of self-adjusting morality, we, we, we have some of the greatest technical advances. But have you noticed, in spite of the technical advances, we live in a time of, of great mass destruction? That, ma that great mass destruction is a direct result of the fool, of the unbeliever of the one who tries to live life without God, who wants a self-adjusting morality. See, they say there is no God because they don't want to answer to God. They, they, they offer judgments based upon how they feel. And so when they say there is no God, 
they're not answerable, except to only themselves. Now, the first result of denying God is, according to David, they are corrupt. By corrupt, he means they're, they're, they're immoral. And the second result of denying God is they've committed abominable injustice. Now, that idea of abominable injustice, if we look at the word abominable, when we see that word used, we're reminded of what Deuteronomy says, that the Lord views sin as something that is abominable. It's something that he hates. And so this injustice is related to sin. Of course, injustice itself is a sin. And so what we see these fools doing, not only are they morally corrupt or immoral, but they do anything ethically, morally, etc., etc., that would violate God's law. And David gives a concluding thought there when he shows how universal this issue is. There is none, there is no one who does good. See, they're denying God, they're denying their humanity, there's nothing good about them. And this takes us right back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 23. See, when somebody denies God, it's impossible for them to know who they are. Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. So therefore, if we say there is no God, what is man? What are we as people? See, in other words, it frees us, at least in the mindset of the unbeliever, to live as one pleases. So, you know, if, if, if you don't want to be, a, if, you're, if you're born a, a biological male or a biological female, because there is no God, you can say, well, I don't want to be a biological male. I don't want to be a biological female. I want to be what I want to be. This is what David is speaking of here. That's an example of what happens when people say there is no God. By denying God, they're denying who we are. If we're not made in, in his image and in his likeness, then we're free to redefine ourselves and be whatever we want to be. And in doing so, we're destroying ourselves. And as a result of that destruction, there is no good in the earth. They have totally gotten rid of God in their heart. But notice that God is not absent. God or David stresses God's transcendence. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the sons of men. Sons of men is a phrase for all mankind, all humanity. He's looking throughout all humanity to see if there's anyone who understands and, 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 and is seeking after God. See, God is looking for those looking for him. Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 9, uh, I say to you, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and, and it will be opened to you. God is looking for those who are asking, seeking, and knocking. But we have a very grim reality here. Everyone has turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is none who do, does good, not even one. We have these absolute clauses in the Hebrew text that basically identify for us a total rebellion all together, none, no, not one. This rebellion has reached every part of the human race. Paul picks up these verses in Romans 3.12. 
and, and, and provide the argument for why the whole world is standing under the wrath of God. Now, friends, understand that when you or I or we rebel against God's kingdom, that places us squarely in the service of Satan's kingdom, that dominion of darkness, as Colossians 1.13 refers to it. And yet, people have this idea that, well, I've got freedom. I want liberty. And so they pursue the kingdom of Satan. And yet, in pursuing, in living in rebellion against God, in thinking because, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do and I want to be free and I don't want money bondage and I want to be able to choose to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, where I want to do it, and so forth. They've placed themselves in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and in reality, they're not free, but they're in bondage. They're enslaved to Satan and his kingdom. You know, you, you, you look around the world and you hear all this talk about, about freedom. And the very people crying for freedom are the very ones themselves enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, to the father of all lies. They're totally corrupt. Their denial of God has affected their reality. Their denial of God has affected their reality. Verse 4 says that these workers of wickedness lack knowledge. They're fools. They deny God. They deny His existence. They don't seek Him. They think that they can devour the people of God as bread. You know that, and, and that's what we see in this day and age. Because the people of God stand for truth, absolute moral truth is found in God's Word. And because of that, we would say that if you're born biologically a man, you're a man. And if you're born biologically a woman, you're a woman. And anything beyond that would be a deviation from God's intended order right away. They don't want to hear that. They, they say, oh, Christianity is, 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 is a bunch of bigots. That's not necessarily the case. But right away, it's very easy to make that accusation. And so because of that, what do they want to do? They want to cancel anyone who would stand up and say, hey, thus saith the Lord, this is wrong. This is, this is not what God intended. This is sin and so forth. And therefore, oh, we're going to cancel that. They want to eat us up like bread. They want to deny God by not calling upon him. And you know, when you look at the verse 4, what you see there is a rebellion against the two greatest commandments. The fact, again, let me, let's read verse 4 here. They eat up my people as though they eat bread and have not called upon God. By not calling upon God, they have violated the command to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, etc. And by uh, basically devouring uh, God's people, they are failing to Obey the command to love one as one would one one's neighbor as one would love oneself. Now let's go to verse five and six. There they were in great fear, where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Look at the consequence of unbelief. In verse 5, the consequence of their unbelief is clear. They are in great fear. Okay, So ultimately, they're going to live in fear. 
They're never going to live in peace and comfort and stability. Furthermore, it says God scattered the bones. Now that's military language. Now it's possible, based on the military language here, that uh, David rewrote this uh, psalm to celebrate the deliverance of Israel from an enemy who had come up against them in a battle. They were destroyed on the field. Their bones were scattered. Uh, and I notice not only are their bones scattered, uh, God puts them to shame. All right, so here's another consequence, okay? They're, they, they live in fear. Uh, they're, they're scattered on the battlefield. Uh, they're put to shame. And, and they're rejected by God. There's four consequences right there in verse 5. David's pronouncing a complete, utter defeat of the enemy of God's people. But then he says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. He concludes his meditation on those who deny God and, and live lives of moral chaos. He longs for the Messiah. That should be our longing. You know, in living in this age that we live in of, of uh, subjective morality, we should be longing for Messiah. I'm reminded of Psalm 2 in verse 6 that says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. We need to be praying for that king to come. I'm reminded also when Jesus entered in Jerusalem, Matthew quoted Zechariah 9, 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. That king came. That king is coming again. He came, to, he came the first time to save. We're still in those days. But when the king comes a second time, he will come to judge. And when he judge, judges, rather, he is going to restore his captive people. He is going to set the righteous free. He's going to set them free from oppression. He's going to set them free from injustice. And God is going to set up his ways. And all those who have stood against him, all those who have denied him, will be lost on the battlefield. This psalm ends with a prophecy. When God restores. Now, in a sense, uh, this was looking forward to a future return of Israel from Babylon. And it looks forward to a restoration uh, of sinners uh, uh, from sin, from death, from hell by Jesus Christ. But it also still looks yet future to the deliverance of God's people from captivity, not in Babylon, not necessarily to sin, but also from Satan as we look forward to that great reign of Christ. And what happens when he delivers his people from unbelief? There's worship. Let Israel rejoice, or let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. In other words, call upon him in praise. Praise God for our salvation. Praise God that we're no longer numbered among the fools. Praise God that we are no longer known as those who are people of unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have delivered us, that you have saved us from unbelief. Father, there was a time in which we were the fool. We were those who said there is no God, but there came a time and a place in which the Holy Spirit broke through and convicted us of sin, of righteousness, and of truth, and in a sense we saw the light and we came to that understanding that there is a God. And that God is you, and you've sent your Son to redeem us and to rescue us 
from the kingdom of Satan. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that we do not have to fear, that we do not face a defeat, that, Lord, we will not be ashamed, and that we will not be rejected by you. Father, we pray for those that are still the fool. We pray for our friends, for our family members, uh, loved ones, neighbors, etc., Father, even people we do not know who are fools because they still have not received you. Father, I pray that you might work on their heart, move upon them, Father, that, uh, Lord, you might rescue them, you might redeem them from sin, rescue them from hell, set them free from eternal damnation. Thank you, Father, for deliverance. And, Lord, we praise you and look forward to that day when your Son returns and establishes his kingdom and welcomes us home into his presence full of joy and a day in which we will know true freedom from not just sin, but from Satan and from your judgment. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.